Hello, I'm Mike Ward, and welcome to this edition of Conversations in Healthcare, which has been recorded uh, in collaboration with One Nucleus's on Helix Conference, which this year is focusing on new medicines in a brave new world. In the Conversations in Healthcare series, uh, which is brought to you by Clarivate, a global leader um, in providing solutions to accelerate the life cycle of, of, of innovation, we, we talk to people who live and breathe the process of turning ideas into innovation across the whole of the healthcare uh, ecosystem. As I mentioned, the focus of this year's on Helix uh, meeting is the creation of new medicines in a, in a post-pandemic world. And in the past 18 months, the life sciences sectors demonstrated how it can mobilize its resources um, to you know, tackle what has obviously been one of the greatest healthcare uh, challenges uh, in, in history. And indeed, <clears throat> at last year's On Helix uh, meeting, which was held in the early days or early months of the pandemic, uh, I spoke to Richard Irwin, who is the uh, general manager. Um, and Managing Director of Roche Products uh, Limited UK, the British arm of, of, of Swiss uh, Pharma Major. And we were talking about, you know, how the company was dealing with the disruptions caused by social distancing, lockdowns and, and, and travel bans. So I'm delighted that uh, Richard joins me again today. And uh, given the fact that we've had uh, another sort of 12 months to sort of, you know, really understand and, and learn how to adapt to, to the pandemic. Um, uh, I'm, I'm delighted that uh, he, he's, he's joining me today. So thanks, thanks for being here, Richard. Pleasure, Mike. So uh, as I mentioned, you know, we spoke in the early, early months of, of, of the pandemic. Now that we are 12 months on, I was wondering whether you could share your sort of thoughts on sort of the actual, the tangible effects that the pandemic has actually had on working practices at, at, at Roche. Yeah, um, Mike, what uh, you said, 12 months, I think it's actually been 15 months. And, um, you know, even though, you know, we have quite a strong virological background and we had some preparation for influenza, SARS, MERS, I don't think any one of us was prepared for still being in the same position about 15 months later. But um, I guess, you know, there's probably four key themes that jump out of me for me. So the first, uh, you may not remember, but I think I said 12 months ago, we were already a highly virtual company. Um, but, and I feel maybe a bit like a dinosaur saying this, I really started to become concerned by purely virtual working. And the reason why I'm concerned about it is, number one, we cannot support our colleagues' well-being virtually. Come on, we all are friends. We all talk with people working in all sectors. Everyone is at breaking points. You know, you know I, I love working long hours. But my diary's gone from 12-hour days to 15-hour days with no gaps in between. And I see exactly the same for all of my colleagues. So we're not supporting our colleagues in terms of well-being. I don't believe, whilst I think virtual tools have progressed exponentially in the last 15 months, 
And you can do one hell of a lot, including big teams working creatively, moved into subgroups, uh, etc. But uh, I, I'm yet to believe that you can truly work in the most creative way um, with a purely virtual way of working. And come on, anyone who truly believes you can build a team with a, per, a, a completely virtual existence, I think is dreaming. So we're going to stay working in the virtual world. We're going to be encouraging people to... Um, you know, work probably the vast majority, 60% of their time virtually. But we are going to be really, really open about critical meetings where we need the creativity of individuals that are going to be office-based meetings. They may not be 100% get all attendees are physical. And I think that's probably the biggest bit that we're going to have to get used to, a mix of physical and virtual content. And I think that's an area where the technology needs to catch up very, very quickly because it's not optimal. But anyway, virtual, fine, but worrying is my summary on that. Um, number two, in terms of, you know, clinical research has been through a roller coaster. Some positive aspects in terms of speed of startup that we saw, you know, I think I mentioned again, we used to be on a one year timeline from first having a clinical trial idea to first patient in. In COVID, we've made that one month. So I think there's been some incredible pieces of that, of remote monitoring that we said we couldn't do in the past. Um, also thrown in with that, what we've done in the UK on things like recovery remap cap has been world leading and brilliant to see. And I hope that we can you know, start doing that outside of COVID studies and more routinely in other studies. Um, only thing on clinical research, I would say, from the UK, we've quickly found out that people in the NHS are super constrained in normal time, leave alone a pandemic. And we've got to treat clinical research like it's a real priority because at the moment it's a little bit of an afterthought in our healthcare system. And I think that does need to change. And I think it's acknowledged by lots of people that it needs to change. Um, very quickly, third piece for me, how medicines are delivered. The world has changed overnight. So say in the past, purely IV treatments, intrathecal treatments, people were generally, yeah, we have restrained capacity, but we can find ways to do it. Uh, not anymore. The world has moved on and being able to deliver innovative medicines but in a way to patients in their home. So we're going to see a lot of fav much more focus on uh, earlier development of new formulations alongside good development of new chemical entities. The way it used to work was you develop your new chemical entity and then you think about new formulations. Not anymore, the two of them are going on hand in hand and we're going to see a huge preference in every country in the world. But the UK will be the most extreme outlier of how can you make these administrable either at home or certainly in an out of hospital setting. And then the last one very quickly um, is, and I think, a brilliant thing. The world no longer accepts variances in patient care and variances in outcomes. Now, it's not good enough to just not accept them. 
you know, we've got to work out how are we going to identify them and then how are we going to fill the gap and make sure that those, we just simply don't get those differences in outcome. So I think we're at the start of a journey, but I think that's a really good thing to say. It is no longer acceptable in an advanced world. You could have a country like the UK, could I sit in Hertfordshire and I won't name the hospitals, but I could tell you if I look at say Adam Brooks outcomes versus some local hospitals here, not acceptable. And we've got to be part working in partnership to deal with the whole of the patient community, not just half of it. Right. Um, very comprehensive uh, introduction. And I just wanted to sort of, you mentioned about the sort of the well-being of, of, of colleagues. So what, what, you know, what have you sort of you know, implemented to actually you know, try and help you know, or provide that support for, for, for that, that wellness? Oh, look, Mike, I don't think there was any rocket science to it. You know, honestly, the single message was two words, chill out. And, and you know, honestly, it wasn't much more complex than saying sorry, guys, um, especially during the, the real peak of the first wave and then coming into Christmas and beyond uh, and into the start of this year. We just said, put your family first. You know, I think with so many people homeschooling, you know, honestly, people had to be given that um, support to go, sorry, looking after your kids, looking after elderly relatives, whatever you're doing, you know, that needs to come first. You know, I think um, we've also found there was, there was areas and say more critical areas, supply chain, where we had to make sure there was no interruption of supply so, you know, we had areas of people with, who didn't have kids who were, who were still able to work properly. And, you know, we were able to swarm in some ways, some people from our organization to work in completely new areas to support the supply chain. So, you know, I think we've been able to do some pretty clever stuff, but, you know, I don't think any of it is rocket science. It's really putting um, your people first and that as your most critical priority. And, you know, we sort of deliberately switched off thinking about certainly sales yeah we still wanted to think about patients and a patient's outcomes but we just put a, a people first and family first mentality and uh, I think I see the same in lots of companies I don't think we're alone here I think yeah. we've just gone through an unprecedented time and people will never forgive us for not getting it right in this period of uh, absolute craziness yeah now you sort of you mentioned you know, sort, of the, sort of the virtual world and 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 the fact that there was a huge amount of disruption. What what impact though has that actually had on your your ability to you know, practice research and development? You know, sort of get that going. You know, has it had an impact on on the productivity? Well, yeah, it's been you know pros and cons. So. Look, if I look at our clinical research, you know, we lead our global clinical research from the UK. So we not only get the insights from the UK, but probably from most other countries. Um, you know, I guess a lot of the listeners will realize this, but we have probably been the most impacted country of, you know, quite rightly, and I'm not criticizing the decisions, but the decisions to prioritize treating COVID meant that everything else got deprioritized. 
and therefore our clinical trials development programs in oncology and hematology and rare diseases in all of our critical areas slowed way more dramatically in the UK than in any other country. Now, interestingly for us, I find it amazing we have not lost any time in terms of a development timeline for our products, but that's been a little bit of a miracle and driven by far less impact in some other big countries, US, Canada, Germany, et cetera, that were able to continue recruiting into global development programs at the same rate. You know, clearly on top of that, though, we've been able to, on really short timelines, prioritize a load of studies in COVID and do both of them at once. So actually, if you look at our total R&D productivity, it may have actually gone up, not down through this period, because, you know, we've been involved with both um, monoclonal antibodies, antibody cocktails, and now oral antivirals in developments. And these things have moved to say, at supersonic pace. So look, we've had to be really flexible, really agile, um, but I think overall, we've managed to do a lot of the developments despite all the hurdles. The other thing, just to be really open, operational costs have dramatically reduced. There is just things that every company probably would have spent on that just have not been happening. So, um, you know, generally, uh, you know, if I look at our clinical development team, they would have been spending a lot of time on aeroplanes, traveling to see regulators. All of that's happened virtually. So actually a really, really good thing has been we've been able to actually put more money into R&D, not less money through the savings that we've made on less air travel, less a lot of other travel and a lot of other things. So it's actually pushed us and been a real catalyst to actually try and do more in terms of R&D overall. It's our only future for any company is how much we invest in R&D, incredible scientists, collaboration. And I think uh, more and more companies we're seeing of so-called big pharma are seeing that they've got to put in even bigger sums into their overall R&D. And I think, um, you know, that has been a, a really positive point. But I guess the only other comment I would make is that you know, we shouldn't take for granted the UK is pretty bloody good in terms of, um, you know, for me, both scientific leadership and clinical leadership. And it's been amazing some of the positive opportunities for really creative partnerships that have come from COVID. And I hope we're going to learn to apply those to every area, not just COVID. And, uh, you know, I already touched on it, but I think what recovery have done in the UK now, imagine if we can find a way to recruit oncology studies, almost like a single collaborative group, not every single centre competing with one another. You know, we could really do some world leading stuff. Yeah. And, and, and that agility that, that you talked about, do you, think, do you think that's sustainable? I mean, do you think that's something that you'll be able to you know, keep hold of and, and be part of a new culture at, at Roche and, and, and other pharma companies? We, uh, look, um, you know, agile is one of the most overused words in any area of business these days, and I hate using it. But, um, you know, I think every company is starting to realize that they've got to, you know, be able to work and, and not strive for perfection, not always have the perfect data sets. 
and you know learn make mistakes and learn again and even more quickly and clearly we've seen in other sectors um, that that's been critical to new starters being better than companies who've been in those sectors for hundreds of years so look I see um, you know Roche like a lot of big healthcare companies we love perfect data perfect answers it's not the way the world works so I think that that sort of agile of being prepared to go with something that is not perfect and then iterate it, co-create it, too much business terminology, but anyway, but realize and be comfortable it will not be perfect. Things will fail and that's fine as long as you learn from it. I think as a sector, healthcare is playing catch up in this area. You know, if I look at data, if I look at consumer, they've been on this journey for way, way longer. But I think it's something that we're going to see in all aspects of healthcare. Um, this quicker iteration, learning is really important to actually delivering better for patients and our customers more quickly. So, so, so when you reflect on the, you know, the last 12, 15 months, I mean, what, what has been the sort of the hardest decision that, or the most challenging decision that you, you've had to, to, to make during that, that time? Uh, uh, I, I, I'm sort of sitting here thinking, should I be open about this? But I, I yes. think it's only fair that I should. Um, I'm going to give you two. But look, firstly, we're on an organizational journey that I've already touched on of really focusing everything into even more R&D investment. And you know, I know there'll be people going, hold it, you're already number one in R&D. You invest $10 billion a year. It's not enough. It's going to have to be more. So we were on a journey of um, further increasing our R&D investment, which meant um, spending less on the business, which meant losing people. And Mike, I've got to be really open with you. I know there'll be some of the listeners who go, shut up, it's your job. Look, just losing one person is horrific. Even if you think it's the right thing to do, you know, we lost more than 100 people. And, um, you know, I think it's our jobs to be horrified by this, but to realize there's times when you've got to do it. But that was hard. The problem was we had already announced this before the COVID lockdown. So clearly uh, we put that on hold. And then the interesting thing was, is again, a lot of our people came back and going, look, we've got COVID uncertainty. We've got uncertainty about our futures. You've got to get on with you know making these uh, you know downsizing essentially and that was without doubt the most horrifying decision don't want anyone feeling sorry for me but that is truly horrific to do it um in the middle of a pandemic when people are going through that pain does not sit comfortably so um you know those are the sort of things look we're not alone we're in a sector that's probably been less impacted than many other sectors. Look, we were, because a lot of our innovative areas globally were hit by COVID, but it wasn't about that. We're big enough, we're family owned, but we can absorb those things. It was things that we were planning to do before in service of even greater R&D productivity and investments. But um, that decision never sat comfortably. To put it off completely was impossible. But, um, you know, I just would appreciate, I've got to give a call out to, 
ex and current Roche colleagues for the way that they approached this because they were exemplary throughout. But that will truly horrify me forever, that decision, Mike. And then the other one, just very quickly, was much, much easier. So we've got a really big site. Um, it holds two and a half thousand people. And um, we were approached by the local NHS trust to say, you're not using your site. Can we use it for vaccine administration? And everyone was really aligned in terms of going, look, we've got a whole meetings and conference centre, we can give it to the NHS, um, away we go. But the problem is, is that now we can't really return to normal because our site's being used for vaccine administration and clearly now there's a consideration of booster shots and other things. So there's this part of wanting to partner um, with all stakeholders and do the right thing in terms of vaccine administration um, but also wanting to get back to some normality with our office. So uh, interesting one, I think we did the right thing, but um, yeah, challenging one, because we also want to you know, have our site available for those who want to go back to physical working, which is more and more on a daily basis. Yeah, sure. So um, has the pandemic at all you know, in, you know, caused you or you know, Roche to sort of shift priorities? I mean, clearly, because there's you know, a lot of focus on COVID, but I sort of, you know, for example, the sort of just diagnostics, we now know the importance of actually testing. I just wonder whether that actually is <clears throat> going to sort of, you know, put some more wind behind the sails of, of your diagnostics activities. Um, you know, I think maybe, Mike, we were really fortunate that obviously we were a big, uh, an organisation that was two different areas with diagnostics and pharma research and development. But um, I think it's probably just convinced us that that is the right approach. And it's not just about COVID. You know, I think at times we get too carried away within pharma that everything's about medicines. Look, if you don't diagnose, if you don't screen right, if you don't diagnose the patients accurately, forget about the medicines, you're not going to get the, the best outcomes. So I think it only reconfirmed our approach in terms of really that strong focus on uh, diagnostics as well as medicines. Um, you know, I've already talked about reducing development time. Um, that gets really, really important. And, and I think that's something that we've got to make sure that we keep in terms of much quicker processes, much quicker um, startup. And I guess the only other point that I would make is that, um, Again, it's got focus outside of medicines. Medicines alone and great diagnostics alone is not enough. You know, I think um, there's areas, whether it be data, whether it be AI, um, I have a real passion for some of the British excellence on therapeutic apps. You know, genomics, we've seen really is going to, I think, take a huge step forward. And actually just remote patient care and support I think there is a lot of these other things that we're going to see as, I think, much stronger themes as we move forward. You mentioned there, you know, digital health and artificial intelligence, you know, sort of, you know thinking about the, the, the future and what's going forward. I, I was just wondering, you know, what, what, what are sort of the, the sort of the interesting developments, the sort of the, the, the innovations that, that, that you're seeing that excite you at, at the moment? Um, yeah, look, I don't think any of it is completely new and not driven by COVID, but just has come on a lot in the last 12 to 24 months. So maybe one's got a top of mind 
that data, you know, I think we've started to see how the right quality of data can answer so many questions. Um, and whether that be in terms of, for instance, using data to identify what drives, say, cancer patient outcomes, to know about the differences and know where you need to intervene, or whether it is about the right quality of data to put into AI, because let's face it, if you put rubbish data in, you're not going to get anything out of it. But, you know, I, I give one example that we are starting to see that, you know, with the right data on AI, for instance, we are looking at some work that we believe that we can, for the first time, work out which symptoms that a GP might see in a potential cancer patient, which are the symptoms that are real that should be acted upon, and which are the ones that you can go, that is absolutely not a cancer. Look, trying to be a GP and, and actually diagnose cancer is impossible, but AI and the right data can make a massive difference. So that is definitely, I think, um, one huge theme. Um, I think the second one is remote patient care. And I think with, um, you know, handheld devices, other things, the technology and how it has moved. And I think what we're seeing now is with really, really simple apps that, you know, you can monitor, for instance, in ophthalmology, and we're quite new to that area. But, you know, with our US colleagues, they developed a very simple iPhone app that can assess the eyesight of any patient, send the data to their ophthalmologist, so the ophthalmologist knows whether they need to be brought back in hospital to be retreated, or whether they're absolutely fine to be left at home. And, you know, also seeing opportunities with regard to things like um, cancer patients feeding in real time their chemotoxicity so that the oncologist and their CNS nurse knows is whether they've got to adapt the dose for their next visit or whatever. So I think there is countless examples where, you know, therapeutic apps can on their own impact patient outcomes. But I think so. I think that area and I think the UK is a real leader in terms of the NHS and our trusts in those areas. Um, the other bits, you know, I think um, genomics I mentioned, but I think, you know, we're in the leading genomics country, I would say. And I think we've led the world with regards to, you know, genomic profiling of different variants. I think we've got the capability to lead the world in terms of genomic profiling of cancer patients with Genomics England and GLHs. But I think cancer is just the start. You know, it's the forerunner. I think we're going to find that, um, you know, not that far away, we are going to be in a position where every one of us will know what cancers we're predisposed to. And not just that, because that by itself doesn't really help you, but also knowing that you're going to have a much more frequent screening timetable. So you know that if you do develop a cancer, it's going to be picked up at an early stage and going to be very operatable and treatable. And, you know, I think there's a number of these areas that the world has changed dramatically over the next two years. Unfortunately, not us, but I believe a company will come along with an early blood test that will pick up most early stage tumours. And I think that is certainly deliverable within the next 10 years, probably less. So I think we should all be excited, I think, through data, through AI, through other advances 
I think certainly in cancer, we are going to see the world dramatically change for the positive and, and us get to much, much better outcomes much sooner. Yeah. That would, that would be a great sort of your positive um, uh, message to, to end on. But I just sort of, I just as one final question, you, you mentioned you know, the fact that the, uh, your site uh, has been used for, for the delivery of vaccines, uh, the COVID vaccines, et cetera. And you're looking to get people you know, back to some sort of normality. I just sort of want, can you give us some idea of, you know, what sort of the timeline that you have at, at, at Roche? Yeah, so, um, well, if you'd asked me two weeks ago, I would have said June 21st, but obviously not. Um, look, our office is, you know, we took the opportunity to renovate. And by the way, with the new ways of working, we've gone from an office that will hold two and a half thousand people to an office that will probably hold four and a half thousand people. And therefore, you know, that was a, a rate limiting step to us bringing even more positions to the UK. So we've got a brilliant positive with that. Um, but to get back to your question, I think we all need to understand, we all know this disease is endemic. It is not going away in the next two to three years. Um, we really have decided to take a pretty laid back approach up till summer. But I think after summer, um, we are going to really be encouraging people to that mix of virtual working and for the right meetings to really get people back to physical interaction as well. Rightly or wrongly, we are planning a company event in September. Now it's planned outside in a venue. Um, and we're still talking about whether we could take the risk on such an approach. I'm really, really keen we would do it. So we are not waiting until next year because we've got a winter ahead of us and we probably know we may not be in lockdown but we're probably going to be in some level of restrictions in November and December. So we're trying to use, you know, this, um, you know, August, September, October as an opportunity to see how the new world of working looks like, because we're in this phase for a number of years. Right. Great. Richard, as always, pleasure talking to you. And, uh, yeah, thanks very much for uh, being candid and, 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 and sharing your thoughts. Um, so uh, it just at this at this stage, I would normally ask the audience to to applaud your your your, your contribution, but it's all virtual, so you just have to just have to imagine it in in your head um, the, the tumultuous applause that, you, that you're getting. So I, I'd also like to uh, thank uh, the, the the listeners for for, for tuning in. Um, this um, you know, if you want to hear other episodes of uh, Conversations in Healthcare, you can follow us on our LinkedIn page because that's where we sort of flag up uh, the releases of, of, of other episodes. So um, I'd like to thank Richard and um, yeah, I'm Mike Ward and I'll, I'll see you next time.